Ledger is a writing podcast and the perfect dessert to take over to your in-laws. I'm Austin Wilson. Welcome to the show. Got a little bit of a cold, uh, like probably like 5% of a cold. I've gotten over most of it. Um, actually, I got it in Chicago. Went to Chicago for a weekend and hung out with some friends and uh, went to four different bookstores, uh, including Bookends and Beginnings, Squeezebox, Quimby's and myopic books. Uh, I recommend every single one of them. We didn't get a chance to go to Exile in Bookville, uh, but that's another one that I super recommend. It's an awesome place. And actually, while at myopic books, I saw a copy of my uh, graphic novel, a used copy since it's out of print, called Reproduct. So if you're in Chicago and you're at myopic books, hop over to the uh, graphic novel section and you'll see Reproduct, potentially. Maybe it got purchased already. I don't know. Um, that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's out of print. So if you want a copy, uh, go grab it there. Um, welcome to the show. Yeah, going to talk to Daniel Krause today, as you can tell by the by the title. Daniel is the writer of, oh gosh, a lot of stuff. Most recently, uh, his book that's coming out in July of 2022 is called The Ghost That Ate Us by Raw Dog Screaming Press. Uh, we get, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his writing schedule, um, the ways that he had to kind of reverse engineer the narrative for The Ghost That Ate Us because he wrote it as a true crime nonfiction story, which is a pretty cool idea. Um, it's about poltergeist activity in a fast food restaurant. So pretty unique. It's got an awesome cover. Uh, make sure you check that out too. Um, but before you get to the interview, uh, we'll, I'll run through all my stuff, uh, swing by austinrwilson.com for, for my work. Uh, you can also go to austinrwilson.com slash ledger for supplemental material that I've started doing alongside the, the interviews that I'm doing. I'm doing print interviews. I'm doing articles. Um, instead of putting it on Patreon or anywhere like that, I just decided to put it on my website. I think that's a, a better way to do it. Um, there are still ways to donate there. Uh, you can also go through the link tree that I have on my Twitter account, which is also Austin R. Wilson, um, to do one-time donations if you want to. Uh, I do the show completely by myself, so uh, anything helps me make it a little bit easier on myself. Um, you can also find my newest story that's going to be published March 30th. Might have already happened, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, in Ahoy Comics, issue number six, of Edgar Allan Poe's Snifter of Death. I have a short story called Hate to Meet You uh, in the back of that issue. Ahoy Comics is awesome. They publish comic books, as you you know can tell from the name, but then also in their single issues, they publish prose fiction. They've actually published another story of mine called B-Rasts, uh, maybe like two years ago. I can't remember when exactly. Uh, so this will be my second one, and it's also set in the same city as B-Rast. So Hate to Meet You and B-Rast are both in a fictional city called Constance, Indiana that I write about um, on and off. I have a short comic um, that I that I set in the city, too. That's on my website. You can go check that out. Um, it's called Night Moves. Um, other than that, make sure you check out Daniel Krause's uh, website, which is danielkrause.com, um, just all one word. Also check out his Twitter account, which is at uh, Daniel D. Krause. Um, and again, his book comes out in July from Raw Dog Screaming Press. Make sure you check it out. Um, and here's the interview. The longer I'm writing, um, the, the sort of less, less effective is really the best way to say it. Like the, the writing achieves probably its top confidence around – you know, 10, 30, 11 AM. And then if I'm lucky, I can hit it again around, you know, 2 PM or something. But I mean, I usually write a full day, a good, like seven or eight hours. Um, but if I miss the morning, it's very difficult for me to start in the afternoon. So when do you wake up then? If you, if you feel like you hit your, your stride kind of the first time around like 10 30, are you getting up at like nine? Um, no, earlier than that. Um, I'm probably usually at work by eight or eight thirty. Yeah. So do you, is that something you've always done? Is that something you've kind of had to click into the longer you've written? Well, you know, for most of my career, I had, um, a full-time job. And so it was really a matter of finding time to write on nights or weekends or holidays and all that stuff. Um, so I tried all sorts of stuff. I tried, 
writing at night. I tried writing before I went to work, all that kind of stuff. And none of it really worked. So I gave it all a, a shot, but really it only worked well and was only worth it if I was writing in the morning. So it must be something just kind of programmed into me. Yeah. So how long um, into your career did you have a full-time job? Oh, probably longer than was necessary. I wanted to, uh, I was just very careful and prudent about making sure I was doing okay enough um, and could could last a few years if suddenly my I failed to sell anything new. Sure. Um, so probably, you know, at this point, the first two-thirds of my career was probably with um, a full-time job, and then the last third has been writing full-time. And you can tell because suddenly, you know, my output, my output, which was already pretty productive, like I'd put out a book every year or every two, usually every year, and now it's like, you know, I've got seven books or seven projects out this year. Uh, so it, it, the production has stepped up vastly as I expected it might. Yeah, but you you think it was a good idea holding on to the job? I, I don't think – I don't have an opinion one way or the other. I'm just curious. Well, yeah, I think it was – for. Mo- I mean, for most of that time period, I would have – it would have been a uh, a bigger of a gamble to leave because I – yeah. It, I might have been making just enough to get by writing without the job, but it would have been just enough to pay the bills. Um, so I did wait until a time where I seemed to sort of break through a certain um, level and could had banked some money, frankly, from writing that would sustain me for a little while if I needed a little bit of time to ramp up, which I didn't, it turns out, but... Um, yeah, so I think I, I played it about right, I think. Do you think there were, like, did you use other ways to measure that other than just, you know, am I going to be able to pay the bills? Like, was there a, a certain part of you that felt like maybe you weren't ready or? No, um, I definitely thought I was ready. Um, I, I think I knew that I was ready a few years before that. Um, one, once I had taken a, a four-month sabbatical from work and – so I'd kind of experienced what it would be like to write full time uh, for about four months, and it was incredibly productive, um, and I got just tremendous amounts of work done. So it um, it wasn't a question of belief in myself as a writer; it was more just a, a practical question of finances. Yeah. So writing for eight hours a day—that's usually what you end up doing, and yep. I like to hear the, you talk about, you know, you hit that stride and then the longer you go past the stride, the sort of diminishing returns. I feel like something that the, you know, writers in general maybe don't talk about enough is, is that idea where it's like, mm-hmm. yes, you can be writing uh, for a long time, but after a certain point, having that gauge to be able to be like, I'm just putting stuff down that is, it's not going to stay. Is that still important to, to like push past that and just, Oh yeah. I got a ton of words down. I know I'm going to change a ton of them. Yeah. Something happened. Absolutely. Yeah. You gotta, I mean, writing the entire day is really what's important. Um, and, and like, again, I said, as I said before, it's, it doesn't all need to be gold. Like I, I, hopefully I'll hit a, a stride or two during the day in which things are really rolling. And generally the faster I'm riding, like the faster my fingers are moving, the better it is. Um, Cause that means I'm really kind of in the groove and the less that will have to be altered later. It's really more of the, the slow sort of hunting and pecking type of riding that is less confident and is going to require work later. But you have to do that to sort of, get to the point I saw online somewhere a quote, I don't have it in front of me about someone talking about this exact thing. And I just saw it a couple mm-hmm. of days ago and they, they talked about it as if you're, you have to break through the membrane. And I thought that was really oh, well yeah. put. That's what it feels like. Like it, it feels like you have to sort of submerge past this almost like skin and into this other almost parallel realm that's almost the same but not quite and once you're under it's like once you're under the water in a pool like 
you acclimate and then you're just sort of off and kicking at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good metaphor. It sort of reminds me, there's a quote I love from uh, this writer named Anna Kesey, where she talks about, I've probably mentioned it on the show before um, where she talks about how she thought that writing a, a novel would feel the same to her as it feels when she's reading a novel that she really loves. And those are not the same things like trying to find that, like you said, the, the membrane and like push through it to have the experience of the story sort of unfolding in your head as you're bringing it to the page. It's, it's a different experience than just reading it. It is, but I don't know if I would agree with that assessment totally. I feel like when I'm cooking that it does feel a little bit like writing or like reading a book. Like when I, when I'm, when I'm really rolling it, it's like coming out in the way that, you know, when you're reading something you really like and you're sort of, it's sort of satisfying your expectation with every sentence. That's kind of what it feels like when I'm, when the writing is going really well. Like when it's going really well, I'm enjoying it in that kind of way. Yeah. That's super interesting. And uh, that actually, uh, I'm going to jump ahead like six or seven questions. The one that I have, uh, because it kind of ties in with that, which is I've talked about this with other writers about the idea of what you're putting on the page. um, What is for you and what is for the reader and the place where those things meet. Like, so if you're, if you're writing in that stage where you feel, 100% engaged and it does feel like you are, you know, kicking through the water, like you were saying, um, do you think it, it feels more like you're just telling yourself the story or is there any sense of the reader there at all? I don't, that's a train going by. You can hear that. (laughs) Um, I don't really consciously anyway, think too much about the reader. I feel like I'm always trying to, um, entertain myself and to some degree impress myself um, in the same way that when I'm reading, um, you know, when I, when I get that feeling of, Oh, that's good. I I wish I would have come up with that. That's kind of what I'm trying to do in real time is surprise myself with sentences. And um, that's, that's kind of what um, that's, that's the hope. That's the ideal anyway. So when you are, in that space. Um, and let's say, you know, you are trying to surprise yourself with sentences um, or are you trying to surprise yourself with story beats um, or is, is that stuff kind of already planned out enough for you that the surprise is going to feel different or maybe not even be there? This usually the larger story beats and even some of the smaller story beats are taken care of. So what I'm really trying to do is surprise myself with the small stuff and usually that's on the sentence level. It'll be some some bit of action with character, dialogue, um, really just sentence, phrases, and words, just the way things are presented on the page. That's what, at the end of the day, that's what impresses me most about other people's writings that I love and what I'm trying to impress myself with. Okay. Do you read your stuff out loud then while you're, while you're drafting? N- no, I don't. Um, I... I do the the next closest thing, which is I kind of read it, you know, in my head. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't actually read it out loud, as I know some people do. Yeah, that's. I I think for some stuff it works, and some stuff it doesn't, and um, it really just depends. Dialogue, obviously, I think um, that's usually the stuff I end up reading first. Uh-huh. Um, but most of the other pro stuff, I, I don't really worry too much about it. The dialogue is that's the stuff that I really want to make sure sounds true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Can. Um, by my count, um, the ghost that ate us is your 14th book. Is that right? I don't know, but that sounds close at least <laughs> based on what I saw on your website. I think it's your 14th. Okay. That's probably accurate um, then based on, uh, or after your first one, monster variations, uh, your first published one. Um, what are some of the differences that you've noticed uh, in yourself oh, um, right. uh, and in your writing, your approach? Just what are some of those differences you've seen between you who wrote the monster variations mm-hmm. and you now who wrote the ghost that ate us? Well, I mean, the biggest difference is just um, sort of technique with uh, story. You know, I can really look at my first three books, especially, and think back to how much I struggled with just the plot of it and how much I stumbled around and how many uh, variations I would write of just 
just trying to get the story down. Like that stuff is just unteachable, really. You just have to sort of learn it by osmosis after a while. It wasn't really till like book four that suddenly it, it felt like I had those muscles and I, I could put together a story that just felt like the beats were in the right place. Right. And it, and it really has to do with weight. Like to, you know, when, you, when I, I'm sure if I go back and read early drafts of this first book or when I read, you know, people's, manuscripts that is their first novel and it's something they're, they're hoping to get published. It's usually a matter of weight. Like um, this part is too big. That part's too small. Uh, it's just like, it's not balanced right in some way. It's kind of hard to express, but you can definitely feel it. And now it feels like the balance is secondhand. Um, so that, you know, then it comes back to trying to surprise myself. Like I don't want to get, I don't want it to be too easy. So I, I do tend to try to set up uh, problems and hurdles and things that make it difficult again, because I think sort of chiseling through the difficulty is what is where, where interesting things really start to happen. Sure. So for, as far as balance goes, um, I'm sure you were, you know, a reader as you grew up. Is that, is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So you, you've been, you know, taking all of this story in for all of your, your life. So, you know, stories. Um, but the idea of building one out of nothing, like being the person who makes all of those pieces fall into place that, and tell me if I'm wrong, but the balance thing, the, the weight, um, really, it seems like, a the, the thing that people struggle with. I know I struggled with when I first started out is trying to balance a story so that it, it takes a person through, the story in a way that feels natural um, yeah. instead of being like, well, I really want to get to this part um, yeah, and jumping on that instead of yeah. them there. Right. And that, yeah, that adds a whole other bunch of other questions. Like if there's a, if there's a part you're waiting to get to and you don't want to write the part you're writing to me, that's a, that's a red flag right. that the part you're writing, you shouldn't be writing, you know, like, there should be a scene. There, there shouldn't be any sequences that you, are, you aren't excited about. Um, and that's something I remember starting to figure out in my second book where I was just like, well, well I'll just make every scene a, the, the good scene, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like it's sort of a, a stupid revelation. Um, and that's really the key. If you're excited about all the scenes, then you're really going to be in good shape because the excitement will, will transmit. Yeah, well, and that's uh, I think Elmore Leonard, right? He said he leaves out the boring parts. Yeah, yeah, and that doesn't mean every scene has to have action in it. Like right. some of my favorite scenes have been, you know, there's virtually no action. Uh, they just have to be scenes you're excited about. Right, and is that? I mean, learning that, like you said, um, I don't, I don't know that I would call that unteachable. Maybe it really depends on the the writer, I think, but learning that learning to find the exciting factor of a scene, even if it is two people just like talking to each other. Um, how long do you feel like it took you to get to a point where you're like, okay, this scene is exciting. You know, younger version of Daniel maybe wouldn't have found it exciting for these reasons. Um, but I know it's going to be exciting because of insert thing. Here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's accurate. Um, yeah, as long as you, there's something about the scene that that makes you excited to write it, like that's that's what it was all about. When I was writing, you know, just on nights, weekends, and holidays, um, the one nice thing about that is that you know, let's say I wrote on a Saturday and Sunday, then for Monday through Friday, I would be thinking about the next scene all week, and I'd be prepping in my head to do it and coming up with new ideas, new little bits of business um, details so that when I, when it came to be Saturday morning, I was just fired up to yeah. write the scene. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a benefit to that sort of pattern. Like I, I think I made it work for me and now I, I don't have that week. I just have the next day and I've been able to make that work for me too, but it, but there was something, you know, I think for a lot of people that would be more helpful to to only write a couple of days a week. Like, I don't follow that precept. I mean, I write 
six days a week and I would be happy to write seven days a week. I did most of my life. Um, but those people, you know, say you have to write every day. That's just not true at all. I think in some ways it can be even stronger if you don't write every day. That is a big theme on this show. I've come to find out. I've talked to some, the other people I've talked to, we've always come around to that idea of, do you have to write every single day? And it kind of starting to sound like to me, more people are like, no, you don't like that's, that's a crazy thing to think that you have to do like, but there's a big difference between having to do it and benefiting from it somehow. Yeah. I mean, I want to, I want to generally keep my head in the game every day. So that's why I would think about it every day. Um, and literally spend time devoted time thinking like essentially for me, it was, I had to walk to the train and get on the train and go to work. That was the time that I would devote to just thinking about the next scene. Yeah. So do you keep like notebooks with you when you're not writing? Oh yeah. 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 I have a, I have a, a drawer full of little, um, what's the brand here? So I've used the same kind forever. Uh, moleskin. Yeah. There's little oh, moleskin yeah. notebooks. Those are awesome. So I have, have them a ton of them just here in my drawer and I've got little, little sticky notes and all the, the good ideas that I haven't used yet and stuff. And, you know, almost all my books can be traced through those notebooks. Oh, so that's awesome. I love that. The the idea of being able to look at that, like very first kernel and ties into the next question, which is, do you remember the very first thing you did that like was a, an official step toward making the ghost that ate us become the story that it became? Oh, this particular book. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I dealt with a note. It's a, it's a, maybe three notebooks back here. It's right near the back of the notebook. I remember exactly where it is. That's awesome. Um, and I think it just has something sort of scrawled down about um, poltergeist in a fast food joint. Um, and I liked that absurdity of taking this sort of like serious uh, gothic sort of idea of this poltergeist and putting it in some place that seemed inherently silly. Yeah. Um, because I, for me, great, really effective horror often is almost funny. Like it rides that line of absurdism. Yeah. You know, like, like I think something like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a great idea. Like I've seen that in theaters where everyone is just like deathly silent. It's so, it's so frightening. And then I've seen it in theaters where everyone is laughing. Yeah. Uh, it just like, you can horror, I think you have to risk looking ridiculous sometimes to be really scary. That's yeah, that's interesting. And I think that uh, you hear other people talk about, you know, how close those feelings are of uh, elation or like entertainment and, and comedy and terror and, uh, you know, utter fear. And um, it actually reminds me, my friend, my best friend, David, uh, he tells a story about he was walking out on a frozen lake one time and his legs shot down through the ice. Oh, no. And his body just reacted by cackling. <laughs> like he, he, he was so scared and knew that he was in this like precarious, dangerous position. And he started laughing. Wow. And I mean, luckily, you know, he was close enough to the edge that they could get him and it, everything was fine. But that idea of like laughing in the face of this thing where it's like my life hangs in the balance right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like there is definitely something in our brains that does that to us. And I was curious of how you feel if, when you're writing, are you, do you feel scared at all as you're, as you're writing the stuff or is it detached no. enough? No, I never feel scared writing. Um, usually if it's, if it's going well, I just feel kind of excited. Um, every once in a while in my books, it doesn't happen very often, but across my books, there's probably two or three or four examples of scenes that I kind of dread, Yeah, you know, in a, in a little way, like either there's something particularly appalling happening, happening in those scenes, or I just know how complicated and difficult the scenes are. Um, so sometimes that'll happen. There'll be a sort of an anticipation about it that borders on you know, anxiety, like you, you know, if you had to deliver a speech the next sure. day or something. 
Um, but no, I don't think I ever feel scared, and I don't really ever feel scared reading or watching horror either. So it's not it's not really a a emotion that I connect with the genre. Oddly enough, so what? I mean, you can answer this if you want to, but you don't have to. What does actually scare you? Is there? I mean, you know, the things that people normally gravitate towards. Yeah, I mean, lots of things in real life, but sure. um, I don't think in I don't think in fiction really much of anything. Um, I, I don't. I can't think of anything. You know, I just don't get scared with fiction, and I get. Uh, but I get excited, and I get. Um, I get motivated and impressed um, when I see something that I, I sort of my brain knows is scary. Yeah, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is going to scare a lot of people. That's really cool. Um, but I don't ever feel scared. No. What's something that has made you feel that way recently? Something where you're like, Oh, people are going to be scared by this. I'm into it. Oh God. I, you know, usually when I do interviews, I try to bring up my, my list of things that I've, <laughs> I've read recently, just so I have answers to this question. Um, give me, give me one second to think here. Yeah, no worries. Um, there's, There's a really, I mean, I've read, I've read a few books this year that all, you know, have these moments of, and it's usually moments that, that do something that I don't do naturally in my writing. Okay. Um, Usually what gets me going are things that I would have never thought of that are, you know, require a skill set that I don't have. Um, those are the things that really excite me because I think it makes me think, all right, there's a, there's a great reason for this book to exist. Yeah. Like, um, it's doing something that not everyone can do. And, and that's just, that's just amazing. Um, there's a, there's a, a book of, uh, stories. Like it's sort of like four novellas. Maybe it's just four short stories called dark moons rising on a starless night. Um, by, and I may not be saying his name right, but by, Mame Bujuma DNA. So I'm almost certainly saying that wrong. Uh, but it's got some stuff, particularly in the first story, that's just uh, gruesome and strange and just like so beyond what I would have ever considered of putting in a story that it was just fantastic. Um, and so that's really what I'm looking for as a reader and as a writer is trying to come up with just situations that just moments, just like little moments even that nobody has done before. Yeah. They don't have to be huge, but you know, but I think, and, and most of the stuff in the ghost of Adis isn't huge. Most of it's kind of small. Yeah. Like, you know, like the, the mascot, the cardboard mascot moving a few inches across <laughs> right. the, the restaurant lobby that, that that's by its definition incredibly small yeah uh but you know i just don't feel like we've seen it in that scenario before right but that with that kind of iconography it just it, there's something about it that feels fresh and strange yeah i think um well also you, the the idea of it being written as a true story i'd love to talk to you about that because as I first started reading it, um, since I got an advanced copy, thank you very much, by the way. Um, that was one thing I was, I was super interested in, like what, what made you excited about writing it as a true story? Um, and yeah, was that something that you arrived at first or like, as you kind of started working into the story, did it show up as a possibility? It showed up in the notes. Yeah. Uh, it was certainly long before I started writing it. Um, I came up with the idea of doing it as a nonfiction book, essentially yeah. reporting on it as if it were a real event. So that obviously includes photos and footnotes and yeah. all that kind of foot um, captions and all that stuff. So is there um, always an aspect of that for a story for you? Cause like for your, for your novel blood sugar, it's written in this kind of uh, unique vernacular. Um, yeah. And that definitely alters the way the the story unfolds well that goes back to what i was saying about creating challenges and hurdles for myself is if i if i force myself to write a book in a way that i haven't before 
with some new set of rules. For blood sugar, it was a certain kind of language and a certain kind of uh, punctuation I wasn't allowed to use and all that stuff. And then for Ghost of the Adas, it's it's got to be written as if it's a, a nonfiction book that's relatively objective. You know, these require totally different tools, and so you can't fall back on a on a bag of tricks, really, right? or less so. Um, so for the Ghost of the Adas, yeah, it was definitely um, something I came up with pretty early in the planning and was really excited about. Um, it felt that sort of true crime kind of tone felt like something that would be exciting to play with. Um, that sort of dry, quasi-objective tone uh, was something I'd never done. And I feel like I have a good handle of it. You know, I've read enough of those type of books, you know, and some of them back in the day, you know, especially back in the day, were supernatural in nature, yeah. you know, we, all the way back to something like um, the Amityville Horror. Right. You know, like that's that's a good model of the kind of book that this follows in the footsteps in. Uh, where they tr- they tell a story and, and they're clearly using interviews with the supposed survivors and all that, but um, it's there's a certain creepiness that comes to a book like the Amityville Horror. The Amityville Horror is not a very well written book, right. um, but there's something about it because it purports to be true. There's something about it in the same way as the Blair Witch Project, you know, that there is just something creepy about it, and. It doesn't matter that it's not particularly well written. There's there's something about the dryness and objectivity of it that, you know, when they say, and then the walls started bleeding, right. you're just sort of like forced to think, well, I guess they, I guess the walls started bleeding because <laughs> right. they're not writing it in this kind of beautiful, um, poetic way. They're just like reporting on it. And there's a dryness to that that was kind of exciting to me. Not that the book is, I don't think, dry and dull uh, most of these books aren't at all they're they're sort of fantastic uh but yeah i was that was a, a new challenge and one that i just really really love this is one of my favorite books to, to write that i've ever done so i think that mechanism the the by the way this is a true story um which you know comedians use you'll hear them say that on on stage right. like, this really happened to me or this is a true story and you know probably not but mm-hmm. it is shocking how much that latches on to the reader or the the viewer's brain. Like, I mean, that's famous story about Fargo where the woman goes to, to find the money because it said it was a true story. So the money must be buried out there. Um, that, mm-hmm. I almost was going to ask you if you wanted to just do the interview like this. The book is 100 percent true. Right. Right. <laughs> I should. have. Well, that was certainly a discussion when with the book. Um, way back to when it was just a project that I was going to send out with my agent. It was like, how do we approach it? Do we want to, do we want to pretend it's real? Yeah. Um, and we decided ultimately not to, like, I think, I think that would be a, I think ultimately that's, that's a recipe for disappointment in somebody's hand to, to suddenly get to the end. And it says, this is a work of fiction. You're like, what? I was, yeah. I've spent so much time Googling this. Right. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it is kind of, it, well, on the one hand, like, to be, like, winking and, and being like, this is true, by the way, and just keeping that up, but not hitting it too hard, because obviously you you don't want that where the the audience feels cheated, or, like, yeah. you took them into your confidence, and then you make them feel foolish. Um, right. Which, yeah, I think with the Blair Witch maybe happened to some people. And I think there was a M. Night Shyamalan, uh, like, mini documentary that did it one time hmm. where people got mad because he was like, yeah, there are these black cars that follow me and made it seem all wow. true. And it turned out it was not, you know, it was it was total fiction. Um, but it could have been fun. <laughs> but, yeah, you don't want the people to feel cheated. Yeah, and I think, honestly, for me the part of the pleasure is knowing knowing that it's a fake true kind of book because i i know as a reader of this kind of thing it that would a, a really amuse me as a reader yeah seeing seeing all the the non-fiction tropes used um in a in aid of a fictional story is is fun to me um in the same way that a mockumentary is fun like you're seeing 
documentary tropes you use in what is just a Christopher Guest movie, but it, it makes it, there's something about it that makes it, um, you know, really enjoyable. Right. Yeah. Subverting the, the format to, to do a different thing. Yeah. The, the challenge is that when you're writing a nonfiction book, you have all the facts at hand. So you're at any given time you can, you can break through barriers of time. So at any, I had to, this book required a tremendous amount of pre-planning um, and an exhaustive timelines for all of the, not all the, not only the the plot mechanisms, but of all the characters. Because if you're writing a nonfiction book at any given time, you should be able to say, you know, Amber, who you know at eight years old knew this and this and this and had experienced this, you need to be able to jump through time at any point, um, which means I had to know you know, the, the backstory of all of these people and their relationships with each other and their grudges with each other and all that stuff so that I could, you know, as the nonfiction writer who already has all this information so that I could shuffle through it at, at any whim. So there's a lot of background work to make it, you know, to make it all cling together. Cause there's a lot of stuff in this book that, you know, is based on exact times of day and, days of the week and it's all very fine tuned in that way. How long did the initial draft take you? I don't know. Um, I'm always working on, on more than one thing at a time. So it's always hard to answer that. Yeah. Um, because it's, you know, like I want to say six months, but I was also doing other stuff during that time. So it's really hard to say exactly. Yeah. But so putting together all of those things, like let's say you're working on another project, um, you're still working on the ghost that ate us at the same time, but um, in a day that you're writing, does some of that writing, like, do you count like, okay, I'm going to be working on the ghost that ate us today, but I'm just going to be doing backstory for these characters because I need to know where they fit together. Yeah, that would all happen before I started writing. So there, So for this book, there would have been, you know, an extra layer of, uh, preparing time where I would have spent an extra couple weeks just pulling together all the backstories and all that stuff. So when you are putting that stuff together, are you putting in like pictures of people that you think the characters maybe look like? How deep do you go uh, when you're building your characters? I, I don't normally do pictures, but I, I go pretty deep. It depends on what's needed. Yeah. For this one, I needed to know more than usual. Um, you know, I needed, I had to make out a sh shift schedule. You know, I right. needed to know who worked at what position in the restaurant, at what times, at what days, um, who was the assistant managers, who had keys to the place. I mean, I, there was this all this sort of detectiving in some way of just figuring out what was the schedule, what was everyone's daily schedule. Yeah. Um. So I knew a lot of mechanical things. Now, as a non, as a supposed nonfiction writer, I'm not going to have the kind of insight to people's personality as I would as a kind of quote unquote fiction writer. Yeah. Um, so I have I'm I rely on these kind of fake interviews to get insights into people. The rest of it is sort of speculation. But what I do have is a whole load of facts. Right. Again, in in quotes, facts that I can construct my my best guess of what people were thinking and feeling. It's a whole, it's a whole different way of writing. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. That's, I mean, that, that sounds fun to me. Like, did you hit a point where it was hard to be like, I have to figure out a way to kind of reverse engineer the yeah. way this character would feel through a thing that this other character tells me about them. Yeah. It was a weird situation because I had to, you know, this was not, you can't write this book and just sit down and write. You have to know how it ends right. because how it ends is the beginning of the book. Like you say, you say, okay, this, on this exact date, this many people died at this location in this restaurant. And then you have to back engineer everything. How do we get to that point? Uh, what, what were the personality quirks and the, you know, coworker alliances or coworker, right animosities that led to this. So it was an entire, it was the whole novel is a, is a really a, uh, is a reverse engineering of an event. 
which is pretty cool. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun to write. Yeah, it was it it was complicated, but um, totally fun because because really once you it required the entire book being planned out pretty minutely. Yeah, um, and then once that's done, all that's left is to sort of report on it as a like a reporter. Yeah. Um. So that was a that was kind of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you've also written, I mean, well, you've written a ton of stuff. You've also wrote a, a graphic novel called the autumnal. Um, and I, I want to talk to you a little bit about comics. I'm a big comic book guy. Um, sure. I love talking about influences, both, you know, uh, conscious and subconscious. And one thing I noticed was the autumnal also has a fire in it. Um, like the ghost that ate us. Hmm. Um, yeah. And I was curious about if there's, Anything in your life that you can kind of attach a, an sort of influence based on fire, or is that just huh. a total coincidence? I think it's coincidence, and I'm trying to think now if I've got other books that've got major fires in them. Um, I can think of one offhand. Yeah. Um, no, I don't. I can't think of anything in my life that would make me. Um, some sort of fire related trauma that keeps me going back. It's the, I mean, out of 14 books, I could think offhand of maybe three. Yeah. And maybe, but I bet there's more. I bet there's, I bet there's another one or two in there that have a fire of it and some long books. There have to be fires in them somewhere. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I always end up thinking about it because I noticed that I write about hands, like huh. hand trauma, like people getting their hands chopped off and, I started noticing, I was like, gee, why am I doing this? Like, <laughs> is there something? And I, like you, I couldn't figure out anything that would, yeah. that would bring it up. It just made me curious about if there were things like that, that like people latched onto for some reason or maybe no reason even. Well, I, I tell you, I write a lot about amputation. Like <laughs> that's, that's, that's something that pops up again and again and again. And I, don't really know why. Maybe that's just a natural, like human, like if you, I mean, I guess maybe it's just loss. Like it boils down to loss. Like you, you think about the idea mm -hmm. of losing something potentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's loss of control. Certainly loss of control. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the autumnal, there's a fire in it, but maybe not, maybe not a big deal. Maybe just a coincidence. Um, when you write comics, but have you written more than like how many, how many comics have you written for the, for the list? Okay. So I've written the autumnal, which is finished and is out in a graphic novel format now. And I've written, um, another graphic novel that's should be announced soon. It's, it's, um, the writing part is done. It's being drawn right now. And then I've got, um, three other comics that, one I'm, I'm writing right now as we speak. That's what I'm writing today. And the other two are finished. Um, and, the, and they will start coming out this year. None of these have been announced yet. Um, but I guess if you add that up, I've got three more comics and another graphic novel. They're all coming, but none of which have been announced. So obviously you like writing comics. I do. It's really different. Um, it's, it's like, it's very much like writing a screenplay. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a certain puzzle aspect to it that's that's fun. There's a I kind of like the idea of, you know, when you write a novel, there's no real limit to anything. It's very amorphous. A chapter can be any size. The book can really be any size. But it's interesting to say, all right, this issue's got to be you know 22 pages, and it's it can only fit you know x many panels on a page, and you want to be aware of when the page ends and have something dramatically satisfying before the page turn. And you want to work with the surprise of a page turn. Right. Uh, all these are, are new kind of mechanics that I find really, um, really fun. And I really like in comics, I like the temporal jumping around ability. Like someone can say, you know, when I was five, this happened to me and you just show it. I mean, there's, there's no, it's, it's so easy to jump back and forth through time and space. Um, I find that really, uh, engaging. So yeah, I mean, a lot of comic writers I know are like, you know, 
the newness will wear off. <laughs> and I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's true. But right now I'm still in that phase where it's, it's really f- a fun format to explore. And I did not grow up with comics. I have no comic influences. Oh, I did not grow up reading comics. Um, I don't know why, but I don't recall them b- being available in my small town where I grew up. Um, so I, I don't have any nostalgic connection to comic book characters or anything like that. Um, I, as an adult, you know, I certainly read um, my share of graphic novels, uh, but um, don't have a comic background whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, my experience with, I, it depends on, you know, the kind of comic book writer, because the, the people who write like a monthly book and then they write like six monthly books, that is a schedule that is to me bonkers <laughs> because they're so far ahead of, of print schedule. Um, so they're writing like six, seven issues ahead. Um, so that kind of comic writing is the kind of comic writing that I know I'm not capable of doing writing like these every single month books that come out like a week or, you know, one a month every Wednesday. I, I've done all my comics and so far as, in the same way I do my novels. I, I sit down and I write all of it yeah. at once. Um, maybe I'll get to a point where I schedule issues, force me to write them on a month by month basis. But I don't see, I honestly don't see how that's a good idea. Right. I know that's how most comic writers do it. But every time I've written a comic, I discover things in issue five that, would be really cool if I retrofit them back in issue one. Right, yeah. And it just seems like, of course that's going to be better. Yep. If you've got them all, if you're working on all the, the whole project all at once, I don't see the at really almost any benefit to doing them month by month, unless it's a, a book that just never ends. You know, if it's one that's just supposed to go on forever, then obviously you can't write a never ending number of scripts <laughs> right. up front. Yeah, I'm right there with you though. I think that it just serves the story better to to write it in that way because you don't want to get to an issue where you're like, well, crap, I didn't think about that thing, so now I can't do this and I, you're closing yourself off because of the format which I think is I I mean in some cases, you know, quote unquote modern uh, or not modern mainstream publishing like DC and Marvel comics, like you said they're in, they're writing stories that essentially never end. Right. So it's very different than like a six issue mini series, like, or, or however. however right. Which is where, where I'm comfortable. Yeah. Gra- uh, mini series or a graphic novel. That's really sort of the, the, the sweet spot for me. Uh, because I'm not somebody who's inclined really to write series and sequels. I like kind of standalone things. Um, so, and those have the, the meat of a, a novel or at least a short novel. Um, it, it's, it's in my, my sweet spot, I think. Yeah. So when you write comics, do you write full script? Are you saying like page one has six panels, yep, yep, yep. single panel? Yep. That's cool. Was that, uh, it, had you written film scripts before or? <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's, it's similar, similar The the dealing with the, units the panels of information is different obviously but you know it's very similar when it comes to describing the action and the dialogue and sort of you know getting the idea across but being brief about it yeah um a big thing i want to talk about is as a writer the belief in your own vision um feeling comfortable with with yourself as a writer and your storytelling capabilities and um, things that you do, um, e- maybe even like literal, um, writing techniques, but maybe just mental techniques, um, to sort of push through the challenges, whether they're interior or exterior, or, um, you know, maybe a book didn't get received like you wanted it to, or, um, w- yeah. what are ways that you deal with those, those forces, <laughs> interior and exterior forces? Well, one of the big things I've done pretty much throughout my whole career is I've, I've uh, divorced myself largely from the release process of any book. Um, like I'm really, really work focused. Like I love writing and that's what's 
been important to me since I was a, a kid writing novels and novellas, which I would just write it, you know, in middle school and high school, and then wouldn't show to anyone. And I'd never, I never even considered showing to anyone. The point was that I was writing them and enjoying them. Yeah. Uh, and that's still the case today. Uh, I'm, 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 I have very low interest in book releases. Um, I, when a book's coming out, it's almost an annoyance to me. Like I, I have to like, sort of pay attention to it again. And I have to like, um, yeah, I don't mind talking about it. like, this is, this is fun, but generally, um, it, it doesn't excite me. Like I don't get, like if it's a book release day, I, I don't care right. essentially. Um, I care about the, the writing of it. That's what's, that's what gets me going. There's really most days of my life. There's really nothing I'd rather be doing, um, which is not the case with a book coming out. Then right. it's just uh, that old thing. And and one of the ways to really to achieve this is to have a lot of stuff going on. You know, I've had certainly had books that have come out, including some of my absolute favorite things that I've done that have not been like financially successful that were not embraced by people. Um, and but if that if that were the you know the only book I had coming out in three years that would be a blow sure but but when you have you know if you're working on five things and one of them fails even if you really loved it you know you don't really have time to dwell on it right you know and and also it probably you know the way I do it where I don't read any reviews or anything like that like I barely know what's happening out there you know like. It, it, whether when a, I have a book that's sort of a hit versus when I have a book that's not, it I barely know the difference. Yeah, like it's it's not really, you know, I might get a sense of it from like, you know, whether or not royalties show up or something like that. Sure. But um, but beyond that, like I don't know what's going on out there, and I'm couldn't be happier to not know. So is that something I, I think I probably know the answer to this already, but you were always that way. You didn't have to. Yes. You, so you didn't, you just didn't care from, I don't want to say it like that. It just didn't affect you. Yeah. Yeah. I care deeply about the books. Sure, yeah. um, I, I don't care much about the, the release of them. I know it's a business essential. It has to come out so it can make money and stuff. Um, and I want people to read them of course. Um, but uh, it's, it's not what drives me. Um, it's, the idea of, uh, you know, seeing a book release and feeling, feeling excited about, oh, it's release day and, and all that stuff that kind of goes around it that you sort of see in kind of author culture. Yeah. Uh, none of it means anything to me. Uh, I just really, really like to write. Yeah. And sort of when you do that, you, you kind of, produce a book <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then things have, things have to happen with that book. Um, and so, but I'm, yeah, I'm really, and I think that's been really good because uh, it, you know, if I really love a book and most of my books, when they come out, I do, you know, or when I finished writing them, I, I, I at least really like them. And sometimes I love them and nothing is really going to take that away from me because yeah. I don't engage with um, sort of the reception of it. You know, I'm still going to love yeah. it regardless of what people are saying out there. Cause I don't really know what they're saying. When the point of it is to tell a good story. Yeah. I mean, and then to, to shave it down even finer, the point is to, to entertain myself and to feel like I've said something that I think will be of interest and of, of meaning to other people. But since I can't control that, once I've sent it out there, then I just, you know, you know, if I finish a book, you know, I complete a manuscript at 10 in the morning at 1030, I'm working on something else. Yeah. Like I'm not going to linger over that. I've got other things to do. Um, and I think, I think really always having so many things going on. I've got seven releases this year um, is, is really key to keeping my mind fresh and confused in a, in a positive way. And, you know, I think it helps that I have, I write for kids and young adults and adults and various genres and it, it, it all sort of, um, I always say this in interviews, but every books, when you, when you write so, so many different ways, um, it, they all serve as palate cleansers for the, the other. Right. And so there's, you know, it's not like I'm writing, if I'm working on five projects right now, they're not, they're no 
they're in no way similar. So there's not really any sameness that's going to bleed over from one to the other since they're so radically different. Yeah. So I'm so then for for the release of books like The Living Dead or or Shape of Water or Troll Hunters, mm-hmm. is that abnormal for you then? Are you still capable of being the the version of of yourself that you prefer where or are you more tied into the release I mean, you have to do more yeah those like those are this. those are good examples yeah um yeah those are a little different you know uh shape of water for that project um you know the movie of which you know so so you know the backstory on that is Guillermo and I came up with the idea and he sort of did the movie and I did the book um so it, yeah, obviously when I went to like film festivals and stuff with <laughs> right. the the movie, that was about as opposite as you can sure. get. Um, but that certainly isn't my usual life. Um, and with um, with The Living Dead, that was a really different situation because I felt like I was caring for the legacy of my favorite artist of all time, George Romero. Yeah. So I felt like I had to, to um, because it wasn't, entirely my work that I was putting out into the world. I needed to pause for that particular project and, and handle it as if it were someone else's work. Cause it kind of was. Um, so for that, you know, COVID got in the way, but there was a, you know, giant weeks long tour uh, movie theaters where we were playing his movies and talking about the book. And there were all these things that were really were, I was doing all for him really. Yeah. Um, you know, none of it happened because of the pandemic, right. but, but still it was a different, it felt entirely different in that way. Yeah. Well, so with that, um, that, I mean that I definitely want to talk a little bit more about that, about him being your favorite artist of all time. Cause that's a huge, that's a huge statement. And yeah. Um, so the experience of writing that, writing that novel and, and caring for that legacy, especially in a world now where zombies are viewed pretty differently um, by a lot mm-hmm. of uh, the viewing audience, the readers out there. Um, I think it was Guillermo del Toro. Actually, I saw some one time talking about how a lot of zombie stories now have turned into like redneck hunting mm-hmm. fantasies rather than yep. these political commentaries like Ramiro was doing. So how to kind of walk me through the living dead scenario, how you end up in that position to write this novel um, and to, to care for this, this thing that. You- well, well, first of all, yeah. First of all, game was totally right when he says that it becomes sort of this redneck hunting fantasy, which is so interesting to, to, to think about since Romero put that into night of the right. dead and dawn of the dead, as if he saw it coming, yeah. you know, he saw like, Oh, if this were a thing, people would get really into it for the wrong reasons. Um, and sure enough, that's sort of what ha- has happened in art. You know, the zombie, which was an you know, incredibly potent metaphor, was turned into you know, the equivalent of a few d- generations of point-and-shoot, you know, first-person shooter type, type of experiences. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, was, I always kind of consider Romero to be like a second dad to me. You know, I, his, his night living dead was the first movie I remember seeing, um, that age, like four or five with my mom and, uh, watched it endlessly throughout my youth since it was always on TV because of it was free of copyright. So people would always play it. And yeah, he just, his films really just taught me about art and in some ways life and, um, the intersection of the two and what and sort of what metaphors mean. And, um, and you know, it's, and as I got older, I continued to really study him, you know, not just his zombie films, but his entire body of work really uh, ardently and voraciously. And was, you know, he just was my favorite artist in any medium. I just absolutely would, would not be doing anything artistic if it wasn't for George Romero. And so really how it all came together was just, you know, one of those kind of one in a million things where um, I sort of found out at some point that I, I knew his manager casually. Um, and, uh, and we sort of got together one day and, you know, 
um, cause he was like, Hey, I, you know, next time I'm in town with George, we'll, we'll all have drinks. And, and next time he came in town, sure enough, I met him and George and, um, and then that was it. And 10 years went by and then he calls me up and this was, you know, about a month after George had died yeah. and he calls me up and he's kind of like, I'm here with George's widow and we're, you know, we've been going through his, his things he was working on and he's got this unfinished novel. And, you know, by that time I'd done a couple collaborations with Guillermo del Toro. So I, you know, I had sort of the, the reputation or the beginning of a reputation anyway, of being able to collaborate effectively. And I think personally, he remembered what a, a devotee of Romero, you know, Specifically Romero. Like I wasn't a, it wasn't that I was some sort of zombie right. fan. Those are sort of a dime a dozen. I was a Romero fan who really understood or had at least a strong interpretation of what Romero was trying to accomplish with all of his work. And they asked me if I'd like to take a crack at it. So um, that just, you know, to this day, I don't know that I'll ever get a phone call that will knock me back like that one did. Um, and yeah, so I, I kind of put up, made up a proposal where I, after I read what George had written, kind of wrote a proposal for, um, his wife and manager to look over and, and, um, you know, I, I've been sort of training for it my whole life, almost my whole life from age like five onward. So I had all sorts of thoughts, you know, I'd always had thoughts about, where what Romero was up to when, with his movies, yeah. uh, where he was heading with his zombie movies, sort of all these sort of philosophical ideas, and um, yeah, they gave me a shot at it, and I, I finished the book, and it was, it was the, the greatest honor of my career, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm. That's one of yours I haven't read yet. I'm super excited to read it. It and Bent Heavens are are both winging their way to my house right now. Those are the next two. Cool. Gonna be cool. I mean that, yeah, that's amazing. Does it, I'm trying to figure out how to, the best way to put it. Do you feel like you have not ownership, but like that you got to tell a story alongside yeah. in a way? Yeah, absolutely. It was, we, when you read the book at the very end, there's a lengthy author's note that sort of explains the whole process of writing it and what kind of materials I had to work with and, and also why I made certain decisions um, and it, it was a, a heavy sort of intellectual and philosophical process really of, of t- learning everything I could about George and also speaking at length to his wife and just trying to get to know him yeah. and try to figure out, you know, what were his feelings on X, Y, and Z, and then putting them together, matching them together with his, his work, both his, both his, his, yeah, with his produced work and then these un, you know unfinished pages, and trying to figure out a way to thread all these needles because the 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 big one of the biggest issue was his the pages he left behind weren't linear. It's not like he wrote half the book and right. stopped. He wrote like a bunch of pages that began the book. He wrote some stuff that was for the end of the book. He wrote some stuff in the middle, and I had to, you know, I had to build fill out at least, you know, half the book, if not more and thread everything together and do it in a way that, you know, made sense with the scope of his films. The book is sort of built so that the, the six zombie movies he made fit into the middle of it. Okay. That's cool. Um, so it is part of the whole, uh, and of course you'll see this in the author's note, but also one of the things I had to do to figure out his trajectory with his what he was doing in the zombie films was figure out the actual order of the zombie oh, films, yeah. which are not are not the order of how they come out. You know, like he made six of them, but once you dig into the movies a little bit, you start to realize that they're not chronological in the sense of the zombie uprising. Right. Um, you know, it's like survival of the dead which is film number six is actually i think number three chronologically interesting day of the dead which is number three in as far as release order is actually number six in the chronology chronology so it's it's this this whole sort of complicated 
thing that once you put them in the right order, you start to see a pattern. And then combined with notes that I had for the end of the book from him and some writing, I was like, okay, so how do we get from that pattern to this ending point, this landing pad that he's made? What's the missing pieces here? Yeah, And you can sort of start to extrapolate those out. That's so cool. I'm pretty excited to read it. I'm, I'm a big Romero fan myself. I don't think is um, anywhere near where you are. Um, but that's one of the reasons why I'm excited. You know, I grew up watching the Romero stuff. I think his movie bruiser is like super underrated. <laughs> huh? That's interesting. Yeah, that was, I, I don't think he ever made a bad movie. I think all of his movies, I, I really like all. Yeah. Of them. I mean, I worked at a video store. Um, it was the first of three video stores that I worked at and, we had monkey shines, we had bruiser Mm -hmm. and that I was at that place where the only thing I knew of Ramiro was the zombie movie. So I was like, wait, what? And so I watched bruiser and I mean, I think it took me a couple of times before I was like, I'm really into this because at first I was like, I don't get this, but when it hit me to this day, it's his today to this day, I think bruiser is his, is the one people like the least. Weird. It's the one. It's the, it's the film of his that people find the hardest to get into. Um, and I would say probably next to that would be um, Survival of the Dead, his finest, his final movie that I just absolutely yeah, love. I still haven't seen it, but uh, yeah. Well, I mean, if if you want to skip to the author's note when you do read the book, and you'll see it on a, a certain page, it'll be easy to find. There's a numbered list. Okay that puts the movies in order. So if you want the full experience, you could read part one of the book, watch all six movies in the order that I tell you to, and then finish the book and you'll have the entire Romero experience. Oh, I might have to do that. (laughs) That that sounds just fun enough and, and uh, like a cool way to, to really dive back in. Totally. I I haven't even done that yet. (laughs) You know, I've seen all the movies a million times, but I've never watched them in that order. So next time I, you know, I'm going to probably be a few years yet. But next time I'm in the mood to watch all of them, I'm going to, I'm going to watch them in that order. That's a cool idea. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, I really appreciate you stopping by and chatting with me. Uh, This is super awesome. I liked it. Like liked our conversation a lot. Yeah, me too. It was fun. Um, Don't forget everybody. uh, The ghost that ate us is coming out in July of this year from raw dog screaming press. Uh, Make sure you go pre-order it, buy it somewhere, get a, get a copy of it. You're going to, you're going to love it. I know. Um, Daniel, thank you again for, for stopping by. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, the listener, for swinging by to listen to this. Uh, I appreciate you, as always, downloading the show, telling your friends about the show, telling anyone who appreciates conversations about writing and books and reading and all of the things that we get to chat about here at Ledger. Uh, I appreciate it a lot. Make sure you check out my website, austinrwilson.com. Uh, and yes, don't forget to go buy the ghost that ate us from raw dog screaming press out in July of 2022. I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>